Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and Jay Geller is joining me on the podcast today to talk about his book, The Sholems, A History of the German-Jewish Bourgeoisie from Emancipation to Destruction. It's a fantastic book that tells the story of German Jewry as a whole through the history of one family, and in particular, the four Sholem brothers, each of whom followed their own political and historical path. Gerhard, or Gershom Sholem, the Zionist, who is most widely known for his scholarship on Jewish mysticism, alongside his brothers Werner, the communist, Reinhold, the nationalist, and Eric, the liberal. It's a multi-layered approach towards thinking about Jews in Germany, as well as the broader possibilities of history and its contingency. The Sholem brothers really showcase the myriad possibilities for political and cultural activity of Jews in Germany prior to the Second World War, as well as the different outcomes of the Jews in Germany. Werner was murdered by the Nazis at Buchenwald. Gershom immigrated to Palestine, and Eric and Reinhold made their way to Australia. Altogether, it sketches the outlines of the German-Jewish cultural and political milieu, as well as the diaspora of the Jews of Germany after the Holocaust. And so the Sholem family is simultaneously an eminent middle-class Jewish Berlin family, and at the same time, it's also distinctly normal, quotidian every day. It showcases through this microcosm the whole story of Jews in Germany in the lead-up to the Second World War and the Holocaust, as well as its aftermath. Jay Geller is the Samuel Rosenthal Professor of Judaic Studies at Case Western Reserve University's Department of History. In addition to the Sholems, which we'll talk about today, he has also written Jews in Post-Holocaust Germany, 1945 to 1953. I'm so excited that Jay is able to join us on the podcast today to discuss the Sholems and German-Jewish history in the largest terms. The book and the issues that it raises helps us to think through both the history of Jews in Germany as well as the legacy of German-Jewish culture on a wider scale. Thanks for listening in. Hi, Jay. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This book is uh, it's just such a fascinating approach, a micro history, really, that uh, is focusing on the four Sholem brothers. You know, obviously, Gershom Sholem is definitely the most well-known of these figures who you are studying you know, as a major figure in Jewish intellectual history, Jewish scholarship. But I think that part of what you've done here, which is so interesting, is to bring forward a handful of people who each represent different pathways through German Jewish history. And this really illuminates uh, a lot of important issues. Do you maybe want to explain briefly uh, about these different trajectories, uh, about these different figures in the Sholem family and what they represent? 
In the 1890s, Arthur and Betty Scholem, who were the owners of a print shop in Berlin, had four sons, Reinhold, Erich, Werner, and Gerhard, later known as Gershom. And in time, they viewed the travails of German society and experienced the ambiguities, if not the difficulties, of German Jewry. And they chose four different political paths. Reinhold, the oldest, was a national liberal or a right liberal. Eric was a liberal Democrat or a left liberal. Werner was a social Democrat and later became a communist. And Gershom, of course, was a Zionist. So in this one family, among these four brothers, we see four political paths taken by German Jewry in the first decades of the 20th century. And these weren't the only paths, but they were by far the most common covering most of the political spectrum. Werner began his career as a socialist, but he joined the Communist Party at the time of the, uh, the merger of the Independent Social Democratic Party with the Communist Party. And he quickly rose to become the second most powerful member of the German Communist Party. He was a personal rival of, of Stalin and the Stalinist clique in German communism in the mid-1920s, when Stalin is, is attempting to take over the other communist parties in, in the Comintern. Uh, Gershom, of course, by far the most famous figure, had an expressly Jewish identity that he would have said was not German Jewish, but purely Jewish. And he intended to make Aliyah very young. He, in fact, left Germany for, for Palestine in 1923. His two older brothers really followed in their father's footsteps. They took over the family print shop. The second oldest brother, Eric, was, as I said, a liberal Democrat, really in the mainstream tradition of German Jewry. But the oldest brother sought a real German identity and identified himself as proudly German. I mean, there are many different ways to tell the story of German Jewry in the 20th century. But to look at a single family, look at four brothers who grew up under identical circumstances, who you would think would have a similar outlook on the world, but in fact have extremely diverse, divergent, even opposing views about what the place of the Jews in Germany should be or could be and what they should do about that, I think that's pretty exceptional. And so the Sholem family is, on the one hand, very ordinary. They are, in some sense, ordinary German Jews, middle class, primarily liberal, involved in commerce and trade, and yet they're also extraordinary in that they have this incredible diversity in the single family. That's the four brothers. I mean, that doesn't even go into aunts and uncles and cousins who represent also different strands like neo-Orthodoxy versus Reform Judaism versus mainstream liberal Judaism in Germany. So the whole family itself is the microcosm of German Jewry in what I call the, the German Jewish century. Part of what is so interesting um, about this approach, you're kind of telling a story on three different levels. Because on the one hand, you're telling the story about each of these individuals, but you're also uh, giving in a way a biography of a family as a whole, both obviously, you know, the set of brothers, but as you mentioned, the extended family. But th through that, you are also telling us a story on a much bigger scale, uh, which is that through the lens of the individual Sholem brothers and the Sholem family at large, you're kind of telling the story of German Jewry uh, at large. Yeah, it's kind of a three-part biography, right? There's the biography of the individuals, the biography of a family, over 150 years or so. 
And then there's the biography of a society. And the society is German Jewry, specifically the German Jewish bourgeoisie, as it develops its own customs, traits, its own understandings, the shared common assumptions that are shared by its members. And then what happens to that micro society, to that civilization? You mentioned how each of the four brothers who all grew up in the same environment, you know, they came from the same place, the same background, they all took different pathways. And it's really striking to me because I think that the Holocaust obviously looms at the horizon. The fact of the destruction of European Jewry makes it difficult for us to understand the horizons of possibility that existed uh, in the decades and the generations before that. You know, and so part of what you're doing here, which is really interesting, um, is to use the story of uh, the Sholem family to see how things are not always leading in the same direction, but they actually lead in multiple divergent directions. Of course, we know how the story of German Jewry ends, right? We know about January 1933, about the disenfranchisement and the persecution of German Jews and about the Holocaust, but they didn't know any of that beforehand. So we need to think about what possibilities they saw uh, with their knowledge of the situation. Now, of course, over time, developments precluded certain possibilities, but that's also part of the story. I mean, at some point in the Sholem story, the communist brother admires the choices made by the Zionist brother. At some point in the Sholem story, the German nationalist brother has to emigrate to a city 10,000 miles away. Uh, the liberal democratic brother leaves Germany with understandable disappointment and bitterness. But that's not where the story begins. And we know that's where the story ends, but of course they did not. So it really is about contingency, about choices. In some ways, my book is also a response to Gershom Scholem's own memoir, From Berlin to Jerusalem, where he revisits all of this and in many ways relitigates the German Jewish century and depicts his own family as well as their 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 peers and their entire milieu as deluded. I mean that is an undeniably Zionist book written of course in the shadow of the Holocaust. And I want to turn things around and look at the experience of German Jews of these typical German Jews like the Sholems uh, on their own terms and not with the benefit of hindsight as, as far as it can be done. I think that's exactly uh, the point I was trying to make before, uh, which is that that people, especially uh, in the popular realm, you know, view history backwards. And this is the case with the Holocaust. This is the case with Zionism uh, and the rise of the state of Israel. And in so many ways, the work of scholars is often to undermine those teleologies and talk about what if, what could have happened differently uh, and about how that horizon of possibility shifts and narrows over time. And I think that you mentioned uh, Sholem's autobiography, From Berlin to Jerusalem, which is fascinating on, on so many different levels. And I think that part of what you've done here, which is really important, is, is to present kind of an alternate narrative of possibility, because I'm kind of fascinated by Zionist uh, autobiographies in general. And I think that what you find in many of these memoirs is a sense of personal teleology. There's a whole subtext to you know uh, Sholem's uh, memoir, you know, he's debating about, you know, studying mathematics and studying Jewish mysticism. And ultimately, he rejects rationalism, right, for, for the mystic approach. And there's all sorts of things going on there in terms of him not just telling us the straight truth, but telling us something which is highly ideologically motivated, you know, about 
his own life trajectory. And without getting too deep into Gershom Sholem himself, I think it is kind of really interesting, this tension between teleology and possibility, and that it's a big challenge for studying German Jewish history to unearth what might have been. I think with the case of Zionism, you know, there's a major project that's been going on for years and years to follow the paths not taken. Uh, but it's one thing to talk about the paths not taken of different forms of Jewish nationalism, diaspora nationalism, you know, non-state-based nationalism, etc. And it's another thing to talk about the paths not taken within German Jewish history when all of the paths lead towards the Holocaust, you know, in the end. Yeah, I'm reminded of the exhibition in the in the Jewish Museum of Berlin that when you go down to the basement, they have an axis that you can follow. And if you're new to the museum, you don't know which path to take. One of the two axes leads up to a void. I mean, it's literally a, a large, black, echoey, cold chamber that's supposed to represent death. But the other axis leads up a ramp that is off kilter. So you, it's hard to walk up. And there's the names of cities on the wall, Johannesburg, Santiago de Chile, uh, Kolkata, etc., and when you finally reach the end of the hallway, you are in a kind of dead-end garden. You're warm, you're safe, you can view the sky, but you're not where you started. You can't go back necessarily. And even the floor of the garden is, is tilted. So they call it the Garden of Exile. And I, I think that that speaks exactly to your point, that we know that there were these two different paths, but of course they didn't know that. In the end, for many German Jews, including some of the Sholems, they reach the safety of exile, but they're in a permanent state of disorientation. What is interesting here is that you are telling a very global history. The story of German Jewry does not end only in British Palestine, later state of Israel. Now, this is a story in particular that has its terminus both in the state of Israel and also in Australia. Uh, and so this tells a very distinctive kind of global history of German Jewry and of Jewish history as a whole. I think about this issue in terms of the Leo Beck Institute, for instance, right? Um, I think that, that when we talk about the German Jewish diaspora, you know, the community of uh, exiles and refugees, the Leo Beck Institute often, I think, creates the contours through which we see it, uh, in particular between the, the triangle of London, Jerusalem, and New York which were the three sort of like center points of the Leo Beck Institute uh, in particular. Um, and so those kind of institutional outlines are a useful illustration of what this diaspora represents, but it also leaves out other areas uh, as well of places where German Jews migrated to. And so especially as we're thinking about the Sholems and you know, Australia, how does looking at the German Jewish diaspora in this way help us to understand it better and think uh, in bigger terms you know, about the dispersion of German Jewry in the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, we're absolutely accustomed to thinking about the German Jewish diaspora in terms of New York, Britain, and Israel. I mean, just think about the place names, Washington Heights, Golders Green, Rehavia. I mean, they're very evocative of something. But there were German Jewish communities in Australia and South Africa, in Latin America. And these have been historically under-researched, though that's also changing. And the relationship of these German Jewish emigrants to their new societies and their relationship to post-war Germany is, is very intriguing. So with the case of the Sholems living in Australia, and there were also some Sholems in South Africa as well, and some in, in Britain, but for the ones in Australia, they are trying to work out 
how German they will be, how Australian they will be, how much of their religious, cultural, and political baggage from Berlin will they bring with them and transplant to Australia? So Reinhold Scholem, who was a national liberal or a right liberal in Berlin, becomes a liberal with a capital L in Australia. He joins the Liberal Party and is on the right wing of Australia's Liberal Party, which is to say he's essentially pretty conservative by Australian political standards, at least Australian political standards of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And his views of religion are very much those from Berlin that he's brought with him to Australia, and he circulates in a community that in some ways reflects the one that he left. Whereas his brother, Eric, who emigrated with him, takes a different course. He Australianizes very quickly. He refuses to, to, to speak German in public uh, for political reasons as well as personal ones. becomes very anti-German. He also, as he re-embraces religion, becomes orthodox, although he does not share that with his family. He's essentially secretly davening at an Orthodox shoal in Sydney. So a number of the sholems who live in Australia today are originally from South Africa. And I'd love to know more about their story, about their experience as white South Africans. Of course, they were an oppressed minority in Nazi Germany. And when they get to South Africa, they find themselves on the different side of, of, of a political ethnic divide. And I think that that transition that experience occurred for many German-Jewish refugees or emigres as they went out into dispersion in Latin America, in South and Southern Africa, in Australia. And, and that's something that other scholars have looked at and are continuing to look at. But the way that the German-Jewish diaspora changes and German, the way that German-Jews think of themselves and their place in the wider society is different um, especially if we're not just talking about Washington Heights, New York, Rahavia, Jerusalem, Golders Green, London. Part of what I'm hoping that we can uncover here a little bit is about how this microcosm that we see through the Sholem family illuminates the bigger picture. It really is telling us the story of German Jewry. You know, what do we gain from looking at this history of migration and this one family's pathway or multiple pathways, as it were, along its contours? and how it illuminates the bigger picture of German Jewish history, as well as modern Jewish history as a whole. I think that looking at a single family, and this family in particular, shows us that there was a tremendous range of diversity, even within the Jewish middle class or the Jewish bourgeoisie, about what it meant to be Jewish, what it meant to be German, how to reconcile these identities, in ways that were so significant that they took them with them in emigration. I mean, it's one thing to look at the broadest spectrum of German Jewish society, including the communal grandees, including the working class, but the, the vast majority of German Jews belong to the bourgeoisie, uh, more specifically the middle class and the upper middle class. The bourgeoisie and the middle class, in my opinion, are not coterminous, but in looking at one family with a shared heritage, where family members came to, came to radically different conclusions about who they were and how to resolve the tensions inherent in being Jewish in Germany in the early 20th century, 
it speaks to the topic we discussed earlier about contingency, about other paths, and about the connections that they were making beyond Jewish society. I mean, Werner Scholem was unmistakably a Jewish figure, even as he circulated in a world that was not Jewish and in some ways could even be anti-Jewish. I mean, I'm talking about the Communist Party of Germany and the wider world of, of European communism, where Gershom comes to an opposite conclusion, that he rejects Germanism, but he embraces the particularism of being Jewish. His brothers seek to find an identity as German and Jewish in a way that would be familiar to us in 21st century America, and that there is greater diversity of Jewishness and Germanness among this community than we might otherwise think. In some ways, the elephant in the room is Gerhard Scholem himself, right? Which is to say that maybe you would disagree, but my instinct is that, that you have this paradox. Because on the one hand, you're saying that the Scholems are this kind of average family in terms of you know, the German-Jewish bourgeoisie of the early 20th century. But at the same time, they are incredibly notable because of the figure of Gershom Scholem and his own uh, you know, intellectual and scholarly work as one of the most important scholars of Jewish studies in the entirety of the 20th century. So I think that what's interesting here is that like, if it wasn't for Gershom Scholem, you probably would not have picked the Scholems for this particular study. Is that right? To some extent, like he's the notable figure that draws the attention to the family. That's true. Although that's not to say that this wouldn't be an interesting story were it not for him. I mean, I can imagine a scholar finding and excavating the story of a family that has a similar uh, socioeconomic and political profile without an, such an outstanding figure in it and bring this to our attention as a representative story. But it's certainly true. If it hadn't been for Gershom Scholem's fame, and then particularly through the agency of his memoir, I wouldn't have discovered this story. Sholem is in some ways part of like a German Jewish pantheon, a number of major figures, you know, intellectual and cultural figures, you know, alongside Hannah Arendt, you know, Walter Benjamin, Abby Warburg, you know, et cetera, who have garnered a huge amount of attention. And I mean, one might even talk about what I might call in a way, I don't mean this term negatively, but it's a Sholem industry, right? And there's a tremendous number of books written about Gershom Sholem, about his biography, about his intellectual work, uh, scholarly activity. You know, why do we have another book on Sholem? And ultimately, why is it that Gershom Sholem you know, really matters in, in such an important way? There does seem to be something of a Sholem industry. I mean, every year, the number of publications about him seems to increase massively. But I think part of the appeal is that he was a thinker beyond category. I mean, he wasn't just a historian of religion. He was at times, also a philosopher, a politician, a linguist, and a theologian. His work speaks to so many different disciplines, but he also has tremendous appeal as representative of a lost intellectual tradition. I'm talking about German or German-speaking Jews, thinking about Judaism, its history, and its place in the wider world. He was younger than Franz Rosenzweig, Martin Buber, and Leo Beck, and he certainly outlived them. He was closely tied uh, at times, to Walter Benjamin, Hannah Arendt, Theodore Adorno, and, and others. But of those outstanding exponents of German Jewish thought, he was the most Zionist. He was the one Israeli as well. And I think it's for that reason that even outside of Jewish circles, he remains 
both the object of examination and a guide to certain subjects. But why my book on Sholem? Well, my book takes a very different approach. It's not a book about Gershom Sholem as a philosopher and a historian of religion. It's not an intellectual history. And some people have criticized it for that, and others have praised it for that same reason. There are great recent books that look at Sholem's thought. David Beale and Amir Engel have written two that come to mind. But my book looks at Gershom Sholem as a German Jew, and it puts him into a social and political context. I mean, he's part of the story. He's an important part of the story. He's the origin for the story, but he's not the whole story. So, I mean, if you're thinking about bringing Gershom Sholem's siblings into the story and why look at, at them as opposed to just look at him, again, I think it fills out the story, provides the fuller context. For many people outside of academia, the best-known book about German Jewry is The Pity of It All by Amos Elon. Many people have mentioned this book to me when I tell them what I'm working on. It's a book that gives a 200-year tour of German Jewish history by looking at famous figures, people like Mendelssohn and Heine, um, Gabriel Reeser is in the book, Hannah Arendt. And yes, Gershom Scholem belongs in that pantheon of famous German Jews, but most German Jews were not Heine's and Arendt's or Mossy's. Right? Most German Jews were people like Eric Scholem and Reinhold Scholem. So if we really want to know about the quotidian experience of German Jewry, we need to look at them, at, at the other Sholems. The fact that they were in the same family as Gershom Sholem, that they grew up under the same circumstances as he did, and that they debated with him the plight of German Jewry only makes their story more intriguing. I mean, it's almost as if we have Olympus in dialogue with the Hoi Polloi down in the Agora. I think that part of what is so interesting here is that you're using the biography of a well-known intellectual figure in order to tell a profoundly social history. You know, what does it do for us? What do we get from bringing these histories together? I think usually when we talk about social history, it is done by looking at obviously people who are not elites, right? But you're looking at both at the same time. The story of the Sholem brothers in the 1920s, when they're making different life choices, and then later in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, when they are retrospectively debating with each other the history of German Jewry in light of the Holocaust, is really about a clash of perspectives. In some ways, the surviving Scholem brothers, Reinhold and Gershom, and then Eric, although he dies earlier than his other brothers, excepting Werner, who was murdered in the Holocaust, but the debate between Reinhold and Gershom is really about a clash of perspectives. If Gershom had stayed in Germany and continued to be involved with the Zionist Federation, but to try to make a, a career for himself in the German university system, it would be a very different story, a different uh, narrative that he would present, that he is able to advocate the narrative he does because he was so successful. I mean, again, the contingency underlies all of this. What if he had gone to Palestine and not gotten a job at the Hebrew University? What if he had remained a librarian at the National Library 
for the next 50 years? What if he hadn't gotten that job, but actually had to work as a math teacher, which was his original intention? What if Reinhold decided to leave Germany a few years earlier and in not such a panicked and harried way? It is a debate between an elite and someone who has a more representative quotidian experience. But in some ways, they're talking past each other as well, because they are so shaped by their own later history. The world-famous public intellectual and university professor and the owner of a plastic molding company in the suburbs of Sydney, Australia, who is thinking about what could have been what should have been in this German-Jewish century that prematurely ended, whereas Gershom is ready to disregard that and to denigrate it in part because, or he can do it in part because he's achieved so much outside of Germany. He didn't need Germany to be where, to achieve what he, what he did. What you're getting at here, and, and which is just so interesting to think about, is that you're telling a, a very complex and nuanced and layered story. Because on the one hand, you're talking about the history of the German Jews and what was that experience or experiences, what they were like, and the different pathways there. But it's, it's a fundamental human story that I think speaks to people you know, or has the potential to speak to people in a very broad way, which is that you know, people are always making choices with their lives at every stage. Uh, no one knows what's going to happen next. And then at some point in the future uh, or some point after that, you know, people can look back and think about what might have been or what could have happened differently. Um, and in the case of uh, of the German Jews and, and the Holocaust, it's, I think, difficult to think about what might have been differently because ultimately the Holocaust eclipses everything and, you know, destroys all possibilities, essentially. So what is interesting here as you think about the Sholems is, is that this is, it's a story about the German Jews, but it's a, a story about life choices and about possibilities as a whole. That's absolutely correct. And they're cognizant of that as well. Werner says to Gershom, if you had tried to make a university career here in Germany, if you had stayed, he's writing this in the early 1930s, mid 1930s, you would now be in the position that many of my law school professors are in that they are out of jobs and looking for employment in, under desperate circumstances, but you had the foresight to leave. Their mother, Betty, says about Werner, why did he put himself in a position to get thrown out of the Communist Party, when in fact the Communist Party ultimately comes around to his political or his ideological perspective, that he, he chose to position himself a certain way. I mean, if he had stayed in the Social Democratic Party, his life may have been completely different. It's no different for Reinhold and Eric, and of course, for hundreds of thousands of, of other German Jews, that the life choices they made early on in the 1910s and 1920s, especially, later have ramifications for how they are positioned to respond to National Socialism and how they perceive it. I'm thinking here in particular of the work of Philip Nielsen, who has written a number of studies in a fantastic recent book about particularly German-Jewish conservatism. Uh, I think the title was uh, Between Heimat and Hatred, Between Homeland and Hatred, Jews in the Right in Germany, 1871 to 1935. And it's just interesting, I think, the way in which 
there were all of these political and cultural possibilities for German Jews in the early 20th century that the Holocaust kind of blinds us to all of those possibilities that, that actually did exist. But I think that part of what you're doing here is contributing to our understanding, not about conservatism in particular, but just about all of the different pathways that were possible uh, at this time. Yeah, thinking about the Jews who are depicted in Philip's book, Between Heimat and Hatred, which is an excellent book, and which begins with Reinhold Scholem. I don't think that we can say that there were all of these possibilities open to German Jews, but that they thought that there were all these possibilities. It's the possibilities that they saw open for themselves or that they wished to pursue. Now, we know that retrospectively that many of them were dead ends. I don't know that it even matters that these paths were dead ends, is that they thought that they were going to bear fruit. So we're again looking at them, their politics, their social, political, economic choices on their own terms and not retrospectively. Many of the, of the Jews depicted in that book were quite far to the right, and they had very romanticized notions about, about race and about the Jews in Germany that today seem to us completely bizarre. I mean, even at the time, many of those Jews were really on the fringe of the community. But they're still part of a, a larger conversation that was being had in the late 1920s, if not earlier, about what could Jews do in response to these growing threats that the old liberal democratic paradigm, the one that's represented in the case of the Scholem family by Eric Scholem, thinking that that no longer is effective, that it is antiquated and no longer effective. And that there needs to be a reconceptualization of German Jewishness, or really of Jewish Germanness, and looking for a renewed place for the Jews in German society. Of the Scholem brothers, Reinhold is the closest to that camp, and even he doesn't go quite to that extreme. I mean, he is still a member of the mainstream center right or right liberal German People's Party, but even after the Holocaust, he's not ready to let go of this. Gershom reproaches him for having deluded himself. And yet, even then, he refuses to accept that he was deluding himself, that he refuses to let go of his own personal notion of what it meant to be a German or to be a Jewish German before Hitler. One thing that you mentioned earlier on in our conversation was this notion of a German-Jewish century, you know, which you track from you know, the emancipation of the German Jews in the 19th century at different points in time. You know, it happens in different times in different places, um, but whether we're talking about 1812 or any other time, right? The emancipation of German Jews or Prussian Jews, you know, until their de-emancipation under the Nazis. And so, do you maybe want to say a bit more about what you mean by the notion of a German-Jewish century? and why this is a useful way of thinking about German-Jewish history or about Jewish history more broadly. The term is clearly a reflection of the expression, the long 19th century. Historians of 19th century European history you know, speak of a long 19th century from the French Revolution to World War I as the, as the bookends of this time period. I think that something similar is at work for the, for the Jews in Germany, especially the Jews under Prussian rule. Emancipation or partial emancipation in 1812 
gave them the means to enter German society, to become Germans by some definition. It allowed them to forge a new, modern, hybrid identity, that they were no longer just going to be Jews under Prussian rule or Austrian rule, that they could become Jewish Germans over time. Now, all of that was called into question and fundamentally undermined with the de-emancipation of the 1930s, particularly 1935 and 1938. But this 125-year span was a long German-Jewish century. Most of your listeners are probably familiar with, with Yuri Sliskin's Jewish century. I don't explore the specifically Jewish contributions to the formation of, of liberalism, socialism, uh, or European nationalism. And I, I'm not making an argument about modernity itself in this book. But German Jews overwhelmingly embraced modernity, and movements that sprang out of modernity were seen as political and cultural avenues for German Jews as they sought a response to the challenges they faced, challenges that were born of reactions to modernity. So if we're thinking about the world of the German Jews, I think that framing it in terms of a long German Jewish century, created or uh, enabled, facilitated by emancipation and ended by de-emancipation is a way to, uh, to wrap one's mind around the experience of the Jews in Germany. Um, there are other books, other sort of sweeping histories of the Jews in Germany that start with Haskalah, they start with Moses Mendelssohn coming to Berlin in 1743. I think that that is in some ways too early. It's, it's not the right place to start. That it's only when the door is opened for the Jews to become Germans that we can start thinking about uh, the creation of a modern German-Jewish identity, this hybrid German-Jewish identity, and then to start thinking about the creation of a modern Jewish identity, about Jews who have, uh, as it were, a foot in two worlds. There's a lot to say about the notion of centuries. Right. And like why these are useful ways to think about things. Obviously, I don't mean a century in terms of like exactly 100 years, but like in terms of a general period of about 100 years. And I think that you're right to think about a historical narrative, a historical approach that has bookends, that in many ways, the, the emancipation or partial emancipation of the Jews in German lands uh, in the early 19th century in different points in different places, you know, opens up a realm of possibilities within which the Sholems are a particular prime example of what those possibilities look like, right? And then that period ends with the narrowing of that horizon of possibility. I think about this in terms of how I, I teach and talk about modern Jewish history in another frame, right? Where, you know, when I teach a class on modern Jewish history, and this is by no means particularly novel, but this is just one of the ways in which I frame it, is, you know, 1790s to 1890s, right? You know, emancipation of Jews in France to the Dreyfus Affair. And of course, this is you know, in some respects, a gross oversimplification of the nature of modern Jewish history and of the nature of French Jewish history in particular. But, you know, it illustrates a point, you know, for students, you know, for people who, who are engaging with the subject to think about how possibilities open, right? And then how they are perceived to close at another point in time. And I just think that it's really an interesting approach towards conceptualizing German Jewish history in a way that is profoundly evocative of the issues that are at stake. When I came up 
with this expression, the German Jewish century, it was clearly an allusion to the notion of the long 19th century in European history and to Yuri Sliskin's Jewish century. So in some ways, it is a rhetorical device. But it's also interesting that in the German translation of my book, the translator dropped that expression and replaced it with the German Jewish epoch, that this notion of the long 19th century doesn't have the same resonance in German or for a German reader of history. And so maybe we could think of this as it's the German Jewish epoch is what it is, and that the name itself is a little bit of a rhetorical device, but it's a little bit of, of a ploy. I want to ask you to perhaps try to explain the ways in which this, as you put it, German Jewish epoch or, or, or German Jewish century speaks to the broader contours of Jewish history as a whole in modern times, which is to say that you've talked here about a particular time period bookended by the possibilities of emancipation and then the way in which it's taken away, right? Or which they're just destroyed by the Nazi regime. Is there a way in which the Sholem experience, right? Or the Sholem's experience, you know, so we're talking about like a whole group of them. It stands in for the German Jewish experiences that are taking place at this time. Does it also in some way uh, help to illuminate the broader range of Jewish experiences across modernity? The Jews of France were the first to receive emancipation, but we're talking about a pretty small community and one that did not achieve the same public visibility as the German Jews. The German Jewish community was in many ways the most visible, the most prominent Jewish community in the Western world until the tragedy of the Holocaust. And in many ways, they set the terms of the debate about Jewish identity, about Jewish religion in the modern world. They are the vanguard in terms of becoming Jews in the modern world. I think that the American Jewish community today, though very few American Jews are literally descended from German Jews, is the kind of cultural or spiritual descendant of the German Jewish community. As the visible representative of modernity and modernism in the diaspora, I think that the German Jews in the long 19th century demonstrated to Jews in the wider Western world what it meant to be modern, what it meant to have a hybrid identity, and that this paradigm was taken up by American Jews, most of whom are of Eastern European descent, but that a German model, a model pioneered at the very least by German Jews, like the Sholems, is one that has been handed down to us. Early in our conversation, you made a comment about how German Jews, following the rise of Nazism and the, the Holocaust, assimilated into whatever Jewish communities existed in the places where they ended up, right? So we're talking about pathway of these people and also of the ideas of, of German Jewish history that perhaps had different outcomes. Because you're talking about the way in which the German Jewish history perhaps set the terms of debate in some ways, but at the same time, the German Jewish people 
right? You know, as they immigrated to, to new places, you know, situated themselves within the worlds in which they arrived. Yeah, I don't think that these are mutually exclusive or, or self-contradictory, actually. That when the German Jews fled to other destinations, they encountered a modernity that was predominantly populated by Ashkenazi Jews of Eastern European descent, but had built upon models that had been pioneered by the German Jews or by some German Jews in earlier times. So, of course, they're not going to find many synagogues that practice the German liberal uh, liturgy. They're not going to find the specific foods that they had been used to eating back in, back in Frankfurt and Berlin. But they are going to find a society where Jews are living lives as Britons and Jews, as Americans and Jews, who have managed to find a place for themselves in a modern, predominantly non-Jewish society in ways that would be recognizable to the German Jews. Is part of the story here that when you get to the period of, of the Holocaust and then its aftermath, that German Jewish refugees and emigres are encountering a very different kind of world, a very different kind of society in the places where they arrive than, say, German Jewish immigrants, you know, or rather Jewish German emigration you know, from Central Europe, say, 100 years beforehand in the mid-19th century, which is to say that when we talk about, say, American Jewish history, right, that, that people often talk about you know, a period of German Jewish migration to the U.S. And of course, you know, you could say, well, these people, you know, weren't exactly Germans because Germany didn't exist, right? And uh, all sorts of different things. But you have the emergence of a, a German Jewish cultural group in the U.S., for instance, in the 19th century, that is in many ways proudly German, you know, in their cultural orientation. And then you get to 100 years later, and there have been a number of radical changes which have taken place. The first one being the mass migration of Eastern European Jews, right? Which means that whatever German Jews are coming to whatever place they're going to, whether we're talking about the US or Australia or the UK or anywhere else, are going to be vastly outnumbered by the population of Jews of Eastern European origin. And secondly, the way in which they may perhaps have be consciously in the post-Holocaust era rejecting German culture you know, because of the experience of the Holocaust. I'm just sort of putting this out there in terms of thinking about what is going on here in terms of this dynamic of the fate of German Jewry and its cultural and intellectual legacy? Even if the bulk of American Jewry, of Eastern European descent, is rejecting German culture, German language, has extremely negative feelings towards Germany, understandably, the institutions that the community enjoys, the institutions that they are building on, have their roots in an earlier era. So, I mean, JTS or HUC, the vast majority of Jews who go to JTS and HUC are of Eastern European descent. That was not any different in the 1940s. But JTS itself, the Jewish Theological Seminary of America in New York, is modeled after an institution that existed in Breslau in Germany. Hebrew Union College, training reform rabbis of Eastern European Ashkenazi descent, has its roots in German Judaism. Jewish philanthropic organizations, not least of which, uh, of course, Bene Brith, they have their roots in the earlier so-called German wave of immigration by Jews to America. You're talking about a group of people 
in the 1920s and beyond. You know, and, and so as we're thinking about the legacy of German Jewry, right, in intellectual you know, and cultural terms, in what ways does the history of the Scholem brothers and their own pathways through the 20th century, how does it help us to better understand, you know, not just German Jewish society as it existed prior to the Holocaust, but also the legacy and the fate of German Jewish culture? Even if the specifics of German Jewish culture from the 1920s, 1930s is, is no longer with us, right? The, the, the specific way that they prayed, the foods they ate, even though these are no longer common in the Jewish world, the ways that they thought about being Jewish, the Jewish modernity that they pioneered and propagated is with us. The idea of having an expressly Jewish identity that is not necessarily a religious one, but is a cultural one, is still with us. Institutions that are essentially modeled after Franz Rosenzweig's Lehrhaus are still with us. The tradition for the modern academic study of Judaism that German Jews pioneered is still with us. Even if the historic German Jewish community is no more, their cultural and institutional legacy continues to inspire Jews around the world, particularly in the diaspora. Gershom Sholem took these models with him to Palestine, transplanted them to the Yeshuv, and many of the institutions of modern Israel, which of course has relatively few Jews of German descent, many of the institutions of modern Israel were in fact shaped by the values, the training, and the norms of German Jewry, whether it be the Hebrew University, the judiciary, or the archival systems. I mean, I know intimately about that last one. Yes, more than perhaps almost anyone else. I mean, I think that it's, I think, a very valid point. One of the key issues about German Jewish history to grapple with is that German Jewry has had in some ways an outsize importance in accordance with their numbers. That on the one hand, it's a challenge, right? You know, people like Gershon Hundert, for instance, have made the very valid criticism of the so-called Germanocentric approach to Jewish history, you know, because it is true that German Jews never accounted for more than 4% of the global Jewish population, right? You know, and so his point is like, so why do we spend so much time talking about them as opposed to Polish Jewish history? But, you know, it is true that in a number of instances, we do see uh, perhaps an outsized influence of German Jews. I think that their institutional influence and their influence as a model for Jews in other parts of the Western world was far in excess of their share of the world Jewish population. I, mean, I agree with you completely. Going back to the Sholems is how does the Sholems help us to understand, you know, this dynamic of German Jewish history and culture and its legacy? Marcus Sholem, who moved to Berlin from Silesia around 1817, was a traditional Orthodox Jew. His great-grandchildren were not, and yet they completely conceived of themselves as Jewish. But what being Jewish meant to them was very different from what it meant to him. Even Gershom Sholem himself was not traditionally Orthodox, and yet he was a person who thought of his identity as completely, as utterly Jewish. But his brothers self-identified as Jewish, as even very Jewish. I mean, looking at the, at the Sholem brothers, 
shows us the different ways that modern Jews reconceptualize what it means to be Jewish, particularly in a liberal or post-liberal world, and in a world where Jews are no longer compelled to define themselves or choose not to define themselves by religious practice and belief. When the Sholems got to Australia, they still circulated in a world that was disproportionately Jewish and thought of themselves as Jews, even when they weren't under compulsion to do so any longer. I think looking at the Sholem brothers shows us the different ways that Jews have historically reframed their identity in modernity, even though none of this is uh, is exceptional to our world, even though these are all things that we have open to us today. I'm trying to explain that, that the generation of Gershom, Werner, Eric, and Reinhold Scholem was among the first to have the opportunity and the need to reframe their Jewish identity. That as they felt that their parents' world of liberal assimilation was failing, that they, they saw it, and, and as they felt that their parents' Judaism was spiritually unsatisfying, and yet as they still identified as Jews, they sought for themselves a way to redefine their Jewish identity. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, a story that, that we see play itself out, you know, again and again you know, across the generations. Why is it that you think that this story is so interesting? You know, and what is it that you want us to take away from it in the biggest terms? I think that German Jewish history matters. And I think it matters now actually more than it did 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, the American Jewish community, which is highly integrated and economically successful, is finding itself confronted with rising anti Semitism and debating what it should do, right? We ask ourselves who are our allies? What paths should we take? And we don't know the future. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that the American Jews are going to face another Holocaust or even the rise of a fascist government, but the American Jewish community might find it interesting to reflect on the choices made by German Jews, Jews like the Sholems, and the institutions that they established, institutions like the Central Council, institutions like the Lairhouse, and look at those models as instructive, if not inspirational, for the construction of the community and as elucidative and reflective of our, of our own debates. You know, I, I think that the American Jewish community has debates about the nature of Jewish identity, religious diversity, and the like. These have echoes in the debates in the German Jewish past, uh, debates that the Sholem family had as it developed and forged its own identity as Germans, Jews, and as German Jews. All right. Well, thank you, Jay, so much for this really, I think, interesting conversation, you know, about the Sholems, about German Jewish history. So I just want to thank you. Your book was fantastic. I'm just so glad we had a chance to talk about it. Thank you for having me. And thanks to you for listening in to this episode with Jay Geller. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.